Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the Middle East political science podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Anne Irfan, University College London, about her new Columbia University Press book, Refuge and Resistance, History of UNRWA and the Palestinian Refugees. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week we talk to Anne Irfan of University College London about her brand new Columbia University Press book, Refuge and Resistance, Palestinians and the International Refugee System. Uh, Anne, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this book and uh, why you decided to write it and what you think the major contributions are. Thanks very much for inviting me on, Mark. This book is really an international history of Palestinian refugee politics. It starts with the Nakba, so it starts in 1948 for obvious reasons. It largely focuses on the immediate decades after the Nakba, although the epilogue of the book brings it up to the 21st century. And within that chronological framework, what I'm really looking at in the book is how Palestinians interacted with what I call the international refugee system or the international regime that was being set up right around the same time that the Palestinians became refugees. Now, as many listeners will know, in the case of the Palestinians, this system, this regime had a very particular element through the Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, better known by its acronym of UNRWA or UNRWA, which was created very specifically for this group, for this population, and which began operations in 1950. And essentially what I trace in the book is how Palestinians responded to this UN agency, which was given responsibility for Palestinian refugees across the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, um, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, which provided them with essential services, which came to really fulfill something of the role of the surrogate state in many ways through the provision of large-scale healthcare and education services, through providing official uh, ID documents to stateless refugees, but which was on the other, which was in many ways also very very limited very restricted and which in the eyes of many palestinian refugees really limited the political advocacy that they saw as inherent to their status as refugees because it only defined them in humanitarian terms so the kind of tension that runs through my analysis is the fact that on the one hand unrwa management and un leadership framed the role of Palestinian refugees or the plight of Palestinian refugees in solely humanitarian terms. And then on the other hand, the refugees themselves saw it as very much a political status. And this tension really runs through what I'm analyzing throughout the book. Now, it's really fascinating that uh, of all of the many refugee populations in the world, the Palestinians developed this special, unique status. Uh, so you have the UNHCR, which is responsible for everybody else. And then the Palestinians have this unique um, standing within these international frameworks. Yes. So this is a really important point and because it, and I think it's something we want to actually clarify because we can often hear this um, slightly distorted and used in mm -hmm. various arguments today. So UNRWA was set up at the end of 1949. It began operations in 1950. UNHCR was set up more or less a year later. And the first thing we want to keep in mind is that when UNHCR was first set up, it was not a global refugee agency. It was mandated really to provide services to European refugees from the aftermath of the Second World War. It, its mandate could be extended. There was the option 
but it was not set up as any kind of universal agency. So there was UNHCR, which was predominantly Eurocentric. There was UNRWA for Palestinian refugees, Palestine refugees. And then in the early 1950s, there was a third UN agency, UNKRA, which was predominantly for Koreans. Mm -hmm. So at that time, it was really standard. It was the norm to have these kind of specialized regionalized agencies. Now, what then happened was in 1967, UNHCR's mandate was changed and it was universalized and it was uh, any kind of regional or chronological restrictions were removed. So the real um, question is why UNRWA was never absorbed under that, why it was never brought into UNHCR's umbrella. There are all kinds of arguments about this, but one crucial thing we want to keep in mind is that UNHCR has a much broader mandate than UNRWA does. And critically, UNHCR is mandated to provide protection to the refugees it serves, and it is mandated to pursue political solutions to their plight. UNRWA does not have a mandate to do either of those things. And as a result of that, many legal scholars have argued that Palestinian refugees suffer from what they call a protection gap, mm -hmm. whereby they have no UN agency, no international body that is responsible for their protection. And that is obviously something that we see as particularly stark with what's happening in Gaza today. Yeah, and this concept of the protection gap is really important. I want to come back to that in a minute. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about the research for the book itself? You've got some unusual access to the UNRWA, UNRWA archive. Um, tell us about you know, how you got the access and what you were able to do with it, what you found, and uh, basically how this enabled you to write the book. Yeah, so, I mean, you asked at the outset why I wrote the book. And one reason I wrote it was simply because in all of my reading around Palestinian history and Palestinian refugees, I was struck by how little there was on UNRWA itself, despite its significance. And when I started looking into it, I, I kind of hypothesized that at least one reason why so little has been written on UNRWA in terms of scholarly histories is that it's very difficult to research, not least in terms of getting access to its collections. So UNRWA actually has a very extensive archival collection held at its headquarters in Amman, in Jordan, but it is a closed archive. There is no on-site archivist. It's very opaque. It is possible, but not easy to get access, certainly not you, not in comparison to more kind of standard mm -hmm. open archives. And it essentially takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of perseverance to be granted access. I was very lucky in that I was granted multiple visits to the archive um, with various challenges, which I've written about um, mm -hmm in various articles, um, but the archives themselves are certainly a really rich uh, resource, not least given the fact that the Palestinians own national archives have been very dispersed. There are efforts by Palestinians to, to put together their own archives. But they're obviously structurally constrained by their dispersal and their dispossession. So the UNRWA archive really contains this wealth of kind of behind the scenes documents where we see all of the conversations that were taking place between officials, but what I was more interested in in the archives is there's such a back catalogue of communications between refugee communities and UNRWA management. And this can also overlap because so many UNRWA staff at the junior levels are themselves Palestinian refugees. So often that feeds through into kind of staff conversations as well. But from really early on, you see organized petitions, letters, advocacy efforts coming in from Palestinian refugees, and they're all recorded in this archive. So that was what I drew on predominantly, but I supplemented it by going to other archives, some of which were a bit easier to, to <laughs> access. 
I spent a lot of time looking at collections at AUB and at the Institute for Palestine Studies in Beirut. I also spent some time um, at the UN's main archive in New York, um, at the UK, uh, UK National Archive, the US National Archives, because both of these states have been really involved in UNRWA's history. And I also drew as far as I could on testimonies and accounts from refugees themselves, either what there's a small number that have actually published testimonies. Mm -hmm. I was able to find a few people to speak to in person. And then I looked elsewhere where we have evidence of refugees' own accounts. And I, what I tried to do is kind of look at all of this in tandem to build up something of a picture of this history. It was really interesting. The combination of the, um, you know, the, the, the stuff you got from the archives about life in the camps and uh, the the way the Palestinians uh, engaged with UNRWA staff, combined with you go back and draw on people's memoirs, on literature, on you know kind of articles that were published contemporaneously, it gives a kind of a rich portrait of what life was like in those camps, which is you know remarkably hard to recover. Thank you. That is what I was aiming for, because I think one of the downsides, if your main resource is a bureaucratic archive, mm -hmm. like the archive, you can risk ending up with something very dry and you can risk ending up with something where the refugees own accounts get lost in some ways. Obviously, as historians, you always want to we always want to contextualize and critique what we're finding in the archive. So those testimonies were also one way of doing that, that we're not just looking at the what arrives on the desk of the senior mm -hmm. UNRWA official, but we're also looking at how how it's or the origin story of that document. What was going on in that camp at that time when that refugee wrote that letter, for example. So I wanna talk about some of the things that, some of the big themes that emerge from that. So the first one, obviously, well, obvious to me, um, having spent all this time in Jordan, is the uh, the centrality of this argument or this opposition to Palestine, to resettlement, um, where Palestinians living in the camps, I mean, of course, they want to have decent lives, but they also are super suspicious of anything which reeks of, you know, kind of a permanent settlement or anything like that. That creates all kinds of obvious challenges for administrators and for anyone else. Walk us through that a little bit and how that develops uh, over the years in these different settings that you were that you were studying. Yeah, so this is this really goes back to the very beginning of UNRWA's history with the Palestinian refugees, because UNRWA itself uh, was set up in the early days, actually with its focus intended to be on jobs schemes. So the full name mm -hmm. of UNRWA is the Relief and Works Agency, and the works is in there because in that early period, its its predominant focus was intended to be on finding long term employment for Palestinian refugees in the Arab host states. And although this was never said publicly, we know from ever evidence behind the scenes from, that I found in archives that this was seen by the US and the UK who were funding UNRWA as really a way to facilitate Taltin, as you say, to facilitate their long-term resettlement and to essentially, quote unquote, resolve the Palestinian mm -hmm. refugee crisis in that way. Now, as we know, this never happened, largely because of resistance from the Palestinian refugees themselves to the works programs, but... The reason I bring it up is because it caused this very damaging long-term legacy in the relationship between UNRWA and Palestinian refugee communities. It was um, a key element in the suspicion many Palestinians felt about UNRWA's real motives. They were concerned that it had really been put there to facilitate their resettlement. Mm -hmm. UNRWA then didn't help itself by in that very early period doing things like trying to plant trees in some of the refugee camps, which obviously creates the idea you're going to be there for a very, very long time. So, 
and that and that in turn caused this sort of constant pushback by refugees. So in terms of the question of how you create services or how you administer a refugee population with this, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that from very early on, there was this quite difficult dynamic on, on account of that. And on account of the fact that many Palestinian refugees to this day will highlight the fact that the UN has explicitly in, um, endorsed the right of return and called for the right of return and that that's never been implemented. So many asked why UNRWA as a UN body was not focusing more on that. Mm-hmm. Um, But at the same time, this is not just an issue for UNRWA, and and you alluded to this in your question, obviously, there's also been significant resistance against, uh, towards the idea of Tautin from host populations, most notably in Lebanon, Mm -hmm. but to lesser degrees, we see that in, we see that in other places as well. Um, And so that has also created this, um, this very difficult dynamic, whereby you've had what is now coming up to 70, well, it's 75 years since the Nakba, UNRWA has been operating for 73 years. You have this um, situation whereby there's a long-term limbo mm-hmm. and, and a setup that is meant to be a uh, short-term relief, is meant to be temporary, but is operating intergenerationally. Um, now, at some point, the UNRWA regime shifted towards longer-term services like healthcare and, and education, but its mandate never ran more than five years. So it was always a bit reactive. And then because of um, the fact, the underlying fact that the Palestinian refugees plight has never been resolved, unfortunately, that creates a structural situation whereby there is you are guaranteed to have crises until that underlying structural issue is resolved. And we've seen that Mm -hmm. and we see that very seriously right now, but we've seen it in other ways over the last 75 years that in the different fields where it operates and sometimes in more than one field, Every few years, UNRWA returns to crisis relief and to emergency relief. You know, we saw it in right. Black September, Lebanese Civil War, the Syrian War. We've seen it many times in Gaza. We're seeing it really badly in Gaza today. So, but it, the tension is real, though, because I mean, you describe very vividly, you know, what it was like in the early years after the Nakba, and you have these communities living out there in basically tents and exposed to the weather, and you know, basically getting blankets and uh, and, and very little else. And that evolves over, as you said, seventy-five years. And you know, my experience going to refugee camps in Jordan or Lebanon is they're 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 kind of policed, they're bureaucratic. Their entry to them is restricted, and you know it's they become these long-term communities over multi-generations with an agency which never had a mandate to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in recent years, even prior to even prior to the current crisis, there's been a lot of criticism of how UNRWA operates and of how the Palestinian refugee camps are set up. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, that's really a product of of how UNRWA was created in the first place and of the fact that it has for all kinds of reasons been left with that very particular mandate and that very particular setup. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the refugee camps today, yeah, they don't, in most cases, they're not tents, um, but they are in many ways kind of um, frozen. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are refugee study scholars who make this interesting point that refugee camps kind of exist outside of both time and space, right? Like you don't see them on maps or you very rarely will see them marked on maps, even though in the Middle East, many of these camps have been there almost as long as other Mm -hmm. places. And they're often not really seen as having their own histories because they are meant to be these temporary relief sites. I think Um, uh, Nasr Abrahman's book, 
Well, I've seen this come up yeah, over and over again. Fascinating. In different yeah. Ways. yeah, 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 yeah. But but then, I mean, it, there's also um, there's also Melissa Gatta just brought out her mm-hmm. um, uh, time time and power. I think it's called in Azraq refugee camp, which is all about how you experience time if you live in a refugee camp. But um, this this whole idea, I think, you see it come to a head then in in the question of how do you, as a relief agency, mm-hmm. deal with this when you're not you're not dealing with emergency relief all the time. You're also dealing with long-term. You're dealing with, say, education, but you're educating this population where the future is is this kind of interminable limbo. Well, that's a perfect transition. You anticipated my next question because... Well, no, because one of the really fascinating uh, uh, chapters in the book it details, and this is when you're talking about the agency of the refugees as they're as they're engaging with uh, with the camp officials, and the turn away from development towards education as a primary function of UNRWA. It's a great story and really illustrates a lot of the themes that you're, that the book is focused upon. Walk, just tell us that story. Walk through how right. it's like emerged out of that interaction between UNRWA's mandate and the agency of the of the refugees. Right. So this is a, this is a really important point because education has become so critical to how UNRWA operates. It's it's really the primary program that a lot of people identify with UNRWA today, but it was not how it started out at all. So as I mentioned, you know, UNRWA started out really with more of this focus on jobs as well as emergency relief. And the first schools, the first classes, lessons that were set up for Palestine refugee kids were set up not by UNRWA. They it predated UNRWA. These early initiatives were set up by Palestinian refugees themselves. Many, in many cases, it was refugees who had perhaps been teachers or been somehow involved in education in Palestine. And they were really concerned that kids were missing schooling, were losing education, were losing out because of the Nakba. And so they took it upon themselves to, in whatever way possible, start setting up makeshift classes, makeshift schools sometimes just in the open air, sometimes in tents, you know, sometimes in buildings where they could, um, often with very, very limited supplies. In the very early period, they got some support from various NGOs, um, from some religious organizations, in some cases from the Red Cross. And when UNRWA began its work, it took over these schools, but it they were not really its primary focus in those early mm-hmm. years. It was really concerned with the jobs programs and with emergency relief but there was continuous pressure and lobbying from Palestinian refugees for more education because the schools that were there were insufficient the resource was the resources were insufficient and what's really striking is many Palestinian refugees had made this very early assessment that education was going to be crucial keep in mind many of the refugees who ended up in the camps had been Falahin in Palestine, they'd been um, they'd been farmers. They'd worked the land. They'd had land capital, and suddenly they'd lost that land capital because they, because mm-hmm. of the possession. And so they recognized very quickly that social capital through education was going to be critical for their children. And what's more, they saw this in many cases as directly connected to reversing the Nakba because they thought that um, one disadvantage they'd had in the 1940s was that the yeshiv, the Jewish population in Palestine as they saw it, and I mean, as we know from historical data, were more highly educated. So there was a very strong sense that education was critical to individual opportunities for children and also to collective opportunities for the Palestinian people as a way forward. 
And they continually lobbied UNRWA. You can find all kinds of petitions, letters, advocacy efforts throughout the archives. And you can, there are even letters from um, inspectors and early UNRWA staff saying things like, oh, you know, we ha we're having these parents whose kids can't enroll because we don't have space. They're turning up every day and standing outside the school all day with their kids to make this point. Wow. At the same time, the Palestinian refugees were really refusing to go along in large numbers with the work schemes. So it was the confluence of these two things. And eventually UNRWA kind of admitted defeat on the work schemes and it started shifting quietly. There was no formal announcement, but it started shifting towards education. And when we get to the end of UNRWA's first decade, it's definitively focused on education. And it's it's very much an early mm -hmm. uh, indicator of this setup whereby you have this, this push-pull back and forth. And by education here, we're talking primary education primarily, primary and secondary? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so then one other part of this, which is interesting, kind of emerges from this account, is that this education also has, I mean, I'm saying this is the only reason, but you talk about the crystallization and the maintenance of Palestinian identity in the diaspora. And in, and in a sense, that also involves kind of looking at what's actually being taught in these um, in, in these UNRWA schools. Yeah, so this is a really important point, and this is another thing that, that sometimes gets a little bit distorted in media mm -hmm. discourse today. So probably the first thing we need to flag here is that there's no singular UNRWA curriculum as mm -hmm. such. So um, the UNRWA schools teach the host state curriculum in whatever host state they're in. Obviously, in Syria, Syria, Lebanon and Jordan, that's relatively straightforward. In um, the West Bank and Gaza, prior to the PA and prior to Oslo, um, schools in the West Bank used the Jordanian curriculum and in Gaza, they used the Egyptian curriculum. However, all of these curricula have always been uh, in UNRWA schools infused with these added elements with um, you know, UN, what's sometimes referred to as UN values, where children are taught about things like universality and notions of human rights. There was also a very interesting move in the 1970s, which I talk about in a later chapter in the book, to try and introduce Palestinian history and geography, uh, Palestinian specific history and geography into the UNRWA schools. And this even happened for a time at the schools in Lebanon. This was another outcome of pressure from Palestinians. Um, because using the host state curriculum meant that Palestinian refugee children were growing up without learning their own background to why they were in that situation. So that was taught for a while in the 1970s, and we can perhaps talk talk more about that a bit later. Let's talk about that but, now, because that's really interesting. Okay, let's, okay, <laughs> let's talk about that now. Yeah, sure. like well, what exactly was being taught and what's the response to it? Yeah, so this is another thing that was really a long-running push from very early on. You can find evidence from really the 1950s that Palestinian um, parents and teachers were pushing for Palestinian history to be taught in the schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly, well, not only the Nakba, but for it to be taught up to and including the Nakba, because they said the education needs to relate to the children's situation and needs to explain it for them. But whereas Turkey, who is, uh, or who was a Palestinian writer who grew up in a camp himself, talked about that. He said, you know, nothing, nothing in my UNRWA school explained where we came from or how we'd got to be where we were, where we are today. Mm -hmm. Now, what's important to keep in mind is that the vast majority of Palestinian teach of teachers in UNRWA schools were Palestinian themselves and were often Palestinian refugees themselves. So they would often find ways to bring this into their teaching kind of informally, but it wasn't really in the curriculum until we get to the late 1960s where this lobbying starts to pay off. 
it is not just informal lobbying, but even the um, Palestinian teachers who were unionized and who would often participate in industrial strike action started including this in their demands when they went on strike. And eventually in the 1960s, the late 1960s, UNRWA decides they need to do something about this and they hire education consultants in Lebanon who put together really an extensive set of materials, um, a syllabus, textbooks, they put together teachers' handbooks, all designed to, how, um, to figure out how to teach all of this. The archives has uh, really kind of interesting records of uh, letters that were sent between this team working, working in Beirut and academics all across the world, mm -hmm. academics in Oxford, academics in the US, all across the Middle That's East, amazing. exchanging um, conversations about which books would be best. I mean, it's a really, I think purely just as academics and as educators, it's a really interesting part of history for us to look at. And this starts being implemented in the 1970s at schools in Lebanon. And there is talk that the eventual plan is to roll it out all across the five fields. That never happens. And it eventually stops in Lebanon as well. Yeah. And there's a little bit of a gap in the archives as to exactly when, exactly when and why that happens. But an educated guess would be that it happens sometime after 82 with the fall of the PLO and the general loss of Palestinian power in Lebanon after that time. Rosemary Sayeg has been doing quite extensive work on this in more recent years, and she's also put the date end date roughly around them. But what's interesting is the archives still hold those materials. And what's more, as part of my research, I was able to track down the family of uh, Ali Othman, who has now passed, but he was the lead consultant behind this initiative. Mm. So in Beirut, I met um, one of his advisors who'd worked with him really closely on the efforts. And then I was also really privileged to meet his widow who actually lives down the road from me in London by a weird coincident, <laughs> coincidence. And she really kindly showed me a lot of his material. It had really been his life's work to try and bring Amazing. this in for Palestine refugee kids. And the materials are still there. Looking forward to uh, the book you write about that. Um... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, okay, so you, you've already hinted at this now, and uh, but I think the next stage of this historically, of course, is where things get even worse, which is, well, I mean, first you get the politicization of the camps as Fatah takes over the PLO and the rise of the factions, but then Black September, the Lebanese Civil War, and UNRWA getting caught in the middle of these, you know, these pretty horrible uh, high conflict situations. Can you tell us a little bit about how UNRWA navigates uh, those difficult years? Yes, this is maybe this is particularly interesting in, in terms in view of current events, but this mm -hmm. is one of its major struggles because from what I call kind of loosely the long 1970s, so from kind of the late 60s up to the early 80s, mm -hmm. we have this period whereby the Fedayeen, Palestinian uh, militants, are uh, really at the apex of their power in the camps and first in Jordan and then in Lebanon in some cases they are almost running the camps now this isn't entirely about um, militancy because uh, they are also providing in many cases welfare and social services and particularly in Lebanon the PLO starts to set itself up as a kind of quasi state there it's, it's trying to run itself as kind of a, a state in exile in some way but for UNRWA at this time, the PLO is still classified as a terrorist organization. 
um, by much of the Western world and crucially by the US, which provides UNRWA with most of its funding. Mm -hmm. So UNRWA is in this incredibly difficult position whereby practically in order to fulfill its mandate, it has to at least navigate its work with the PLO because the PLO is holding a huge degree of power in the camps. But it can't be seen to be in any way legitimizing or um, or endorsing or recognizing the PLO. And, and the US is sending it these very um, kind of strict warnings that if you're seen to be doing that, we're gonna cut your funding. So UNRWA has to find this very, has to play this very difficult balancing act in these years. It Things get slightly easy for it after 1974, because after that, the UN recognizes the PLO, at least the UN General mm -hmm. Assembly does. So that gives UNRWA a little bit of a framework that it can work within. But it's often walking a very difficult tightrope. There are a couple of um, cases where the PLO is found to be doing things like having after school activities in UNRWA schools. Um, UNRWA then finds out about it and, and you know clamps down on the PLO. But the other angle to all of this is that even though there are these tensions between the PLO and UNRWA and the PLO is often quite critical of UNRWA, behind the scenes, the PLO is also in many ways aware that it that it in particular and the Palestinian people in general need UNRWA. Mm -hmm. And so you have Arafat behind the scenes actually raising money for UNRWA. So there are many strands wow. to, this, to this relationship. And, and Arafat, by all accounts, and according to some people I interviewed for this who'd worked with him, he in some cases actually essentially missed out on potential funding for the PLO because he prioritized fundraising for UNRWA. That's really interesting. And then... Um... Yeah, well, let's, we'll come back in a moment to uh, the relevance of that for the current situation. So I think it's really yeah. that's a really important conversation. But I want to ask like one more one more kind of big question about like the core part of the book itself, which is we mentioned before you mentioned the concept of the protection gap, and you also mentioned this idea that you have UNRWA, which is operating as almost like a quasi state in many ways. It's taking over many of the functions of the state for refugees in Jordan, in Lebanon and the like, but they're, but they're not accountable to those states. They're accountable to the UN. And it, there's, that's kind of one of the, I think one of the theoretical contributions that the book is making. So talk us through this a little bit, how this evolves and kind of how, how you understand that kind of ambiguous status that UNRWA develops as an organization. Yeah, I think it's sometimes uh, useful to almost think of, of UNRWA as floating in this particular orbit where it has various forces pulling on it. So if you think of UNRWA in the middle, it's got the donor states dominated by the US as one force pulling on it. It's got the Arab host states. It's got Israel, which after 1967 is obviously the occupying power in the, in the West Bank and Gaza. And it's got the Palestinian refugees themselves. And, and all four of these actors have to varying degrees and in different ways leverage over UNRWA. And UNRWA to some degree also has leverage over all of them. But what it's essentially doing is trying to keep the balance between all of these um, all of these different actors who are who are pulling and pushing on it in various ways. And at different times, we see it moving closer into the orbit of one or, or closer into the orbit of another. Um, the other thing that I think is striking is that between these four groups, they are sometimes in alignment in ways that are different to what we might imagine. So most notably, Israel and the Arab host states 
tend to be pretty much aligned in their relations with UNRWA. While they would they would not really admit to it openly, they all pretty much want the same thing. They want UNRWA to provide maximum services because that take, that relieves them as the as the local authorities. And conversely, the donor states want the opposite. They want UNRWA to, you know, be really kind of uh, what they call efficient in its service mm-hmm. provision, but to be very minimal in a way to, to relieve what's demanded of them. Um, so UNRWA has this, what's sometimes called a bit of a hybrid setup, whereby it's part aid agency, it's part emergency relief, it's part surrogate state, it's international, it has elements that are very Palestinian, especially if we look at the um, composition of its junior staff. Mm-hmm. And it is often doing a balancing act between all of these. I think there's a quote I have somewhere in the book where one of the commissioner generals in the 1970s is listing all of these things. And he says, you know, at times, at times all of these pressures work together, but most of the time they're not compatible. At times they're compatible, but most of the time they're not. And then that leaves them in this kind of like vulnerable uh, status. Um, And you mentioned uh, at various points in the book, you talk about the various moments where like just for example, under the Trump administration where uh, it gets defunded, where it's scrambling just to get money to continue its basic services. Um, And maybe can you say a little bit about that and kind of how that kind of resonated with UNRWA as an organization? Yeah, I I mean, I think that also alludes to another really important point for understanding UNRWA as an organization, which is that UNRWA has this mandate from the UN General Assembly to provide uh, services to, to register Palestine refugees, but it doesn't have any guaranteed funding stream to do that. So it's always been reliant on donations and, and it always has had to spend a lot of its own resources on fundraising. And that really kind of came to the to the fore in 2018 when the Trump administration um, completely defunded UNRWA. This was, a, you know, a massive U-turn. It was followed decades where the US had been the major funder of UNRWA. And it left UNRWA, as you said, kind of scrambling to try and find a way to fill this funding gap, but also to try and... Um, figure out how it could position itself going forward if the UN, if the US was no longer going to be its major donor. Um, obviously, not long after that, the Biden administration did then resume funding to UNRWA, albeit at a, at a, at a lesser rate than what's often been the case historically. Um, but, it, but it did highlight this fundamental disconnect in how UNRWA is set up, that it's, it's sort of operating like it's an NGO, like it's a, a charity, but actually it's not, it's a body of the UN. It's a body of what is supposed to be an international, the representation of the international community that's mandated it to do this. And yet it is not given any resources to do that. And what's more, in order to raise funds, UNRWA has to pursue another tension in its setup, which is that although it's uh, supposed to be apolitical, uh, it often has to cast its work in political terms in order to get funding. So to the US, it often would have to talk about the fact that it provides stability uh, and that it it would often even allude to the fact that, you know, if UNRWA is not there, you might have worse actors. This During um, the apex of ISIS's power, this was something that we saw alluded to a lot. Um to different actors, it will make different points. But but again, it, it sort of has to skirt around the, the edges of engaging with the politics of its work mm-hmm. in order to get that funding. Well, let's um, kind of come full circle now. And, you know, so this is, uh, we're recording this interview in early November 2023. 
Um, we're about we're a month into Israel's war with Gaza, um, and just the, the the sheer absolute scale of the devastation of Gaza is just beggars the imagination, um, and. It's also uh, leading towards uh, the large, the possibility of large-scale um, uh, mass transfer of Palestinians out of Gaza, possibly out of the West Bank, and kind of bringing these issues of uh, the possible international responsibility for another Nakba, another um, uh, massive wave of refugees, kind of back into the center of consciousness, which is like the very last place we wanted to be, but here we are. Um, and I'm wondering uh, what lessons uh, you think your book and your research have for those of us who are trying to make sense of, of kind of what's happening here. Well, I think the, the primary lesson would be what a mistake it was to try and separate the humanitarian or socioeconomic needs of the refugees from the underlying political causes of their refugee status. There was and there has been, and, and there is in many quarters today, still this view that you can separate those things, or even that in purely addressing the so-called humanitarian side, you will indirectly find a way of addressing the political side. But that has been attempted for a very long time now. That has not worked. Being stateless refugees for the Palestinians is a structural condition that basically drives their positioning mm -hmm. um, in, in every way. We We live in a world where the nation state is normative, where citizenship is normative. If you don't have it, it drives everything. If you don't have it as a people, it undermines your rights as a people, as well as undermining your rights as individuals. Um, I would say that is the primary takeaway. Now, whether it's been absorbed is a totally different question. Mm -hmm. Under the current management, UNRWA look to unfortunately be going in the opposite direction and trying to move even further away from any engagement with the politics of the of the Palestinian refugee situation, uh, which, given the current situation, the idea of trying to disconnect those things mm -hmm. seems very seems very at odds with with what's playing out. Could you even imagine a situation where they tell UNRWA to, you know, go set up camps in Gaza, or I'm sorry, in the Sinai for all of these new Gazan refugees? Is that even something that UNRWA organizationally could undertake? Not that so, they should, I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm just trying to right, think about yeah. like, how we think about UNRWA as an organization right now. So in if we think about precedents, it's certainly the case that UNRWA was set up to provide services to the first wave of Nakba refugees in 48. Mm -hmm. It is certainly the case that since then, UNRWA has provided services to other waves of displaced people, you know, in 67. Uh, it also, it, it provided services to uh, Palestinians who were displaced during the Lebanese war. That was usually within Lebanon, but it was still mm -hmm. displacement. And also um, Palestinians who were displaced within and from Syria. Uh, during the Syrian war over the last decade. So to answer your question, you know, and I'm talking here purely in kind of logistics and, and practicalities, right, right, right. There, is, there is that precedent. UNRWA does not have any mandate to work in Egypt um, and it's never worked in Egypt. So that would need to be addressed, but- Egypt has made it pretty clear that they're not going to let it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's interesting. Yeah, that's and, UN, as and a UN honest, agency, it has to work through those formal channels. Well, but to be honest, the fact that I'm saying like the the main the main formal restraint would be that it's not mandated to work in Egypt. I that that 
if yeah. if the actors who have power wanted to overcome that, they could find a way to it. They could find a way. Let me let me ask that. about this in a slightly different way because um, you know God forbid we have uh, another uh, nakba um, for Unruh to manage. But look at what's happening right now. Uh, when Israel last week uh, they carried out a series of bombing strikes against uh, major refugee camps in Gaza, uh, you saw in the media quite a bit of like uh, you know people who are you know the, the people are trying to defend it, saying that's not a refugee camp; those are buildings; those are. Um, you know, right. those are, those are, this is like a developed uh, community. They're not right. refugee camps. And how would you right. respond to that kind of, um, you know, pop, that, that kind of uh, criticism? Yeah, yeah I, I hear this a lot. And I, I also, and I'm sure you did too. I also heard it a lot over the summer during the uh, invasion of Janine. I was about to mention Janine as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not really a refugee camp. So, well, the first thing I would point out is that actually most refugee camps around the world today do not comprise of tents. Because I think that's really what people mean when they make these comments. They really mean it should be tense mm -hmm. or it should be something very visibly temporary. But actually, the majority of displacements around the world today are defined by the UN as protracted, protracted displacements. And the majority of refugee camps, therefore, have more of this kind of semi-permanent form. Obviously, the Palestinians are at the hard end of that. Their, their displacement is the most protracted in modern history, but it's not as exceptional as that discourse often mm -hmm. tends to imply. And again, I think this still speaks to this assumption that refugee status is about need, uh, about socioeconomic need, I mean, or is it, or about humanitarian need, but refugee status is about having been displaced. It's about that political status mm -hmm. or that you know civil rights status of having been displaced. You can be a refugee, uh, you know, there are refugees living in the West who might be very comfortable, mm -hmm. but they have still experienced being a refugee because they've been displaced. I, I think that is um, that is an assumption that many people in the West bring to this that is not quite commensurate with what, what it actually means to be made a refugee. And and, and refugee status is a right. It's a, fun, yes. it's a basic universal human right. Yes, yes. And But again, this is part of the same thing, that the right is, mm -hmm. is you get that right because of, being displaced and it's irrelevant whether or not you are in humanitarian need as to whether you have the right to claim refugee status. Absolutely. Um, well, Anne Irfan, thank you so much for, for talking with us about your book, um, Refuge and Resistance. This has been the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Thanks to Anne Irfan for talking with us about her book, Refuge and Resistance. Yeah.